You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 78, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. Well, it's the middle of February, and I have been home from traveling for a few weeks, uh, resting up and catching up on things. But uh, after I post this episode, I will load up my suitcases again and head to the airport for one more trip to Peru. So this will be our third tour of the year, and the first two were quite successful, so I'm looking forward to having yet another opportunity to spend some time in the rainforest. And I wanted to get an episode out before leaving, and so we'll meet right back here again in just a few weeks. Now, before we get to this week's episode, I want to thank all of the show's patrons who help keep the So Much Pingle juggernaut moving forward. It takes time and treasure to keep entertainment channels going, and I'm grateful for everyone's support. And if you're out there listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks to help out, it's really easy to do, and I'll tell you all about it at the end of the show. Oh, and one more thing, I want to give a little shout-out to Tony Dangara for the note he sent me. Uh, Thanks, Tony. I really appreciate the feedback. So our guest this week is Darren Riddle, and I recorded this session with Darren down in Peru last month. And before uh, we we hung out in Peru, I knew him just a little bit uh, from some field trips in Kansas and a couple meetings. And it was a real pleasure to spend some time to get to know him better in one of my favorite places. And uh, the topics we covered span multiple continents, so it was very interesting. So let's get to my conversation with Darren. Good morning, everyone, and once again, I'm speaking to you from a really hot hut in the Peruvian Amazon, and my guest this morning is Darren Riddle. Welcome to the show, Darren. Hey, thanks, Mike. Good to have you. Uh, good to have you down here with us and uh, share in, in our adventures here in the Peruvian Amazon. I hope you're having a pretty good time. Yeah, well, we're about halfway or a little over, and it's been great so far. Okay. Yeah. All right. And... Uh, Quite a few species so far. I don't know. You'd be keeping pretty close track. and Yeah, I've been, tre- you know, I think new species for me, I'm around 65 or so already. Okay. So around 70, 75 for the trip. So. Not bad. Yeah, Not no. Bad. No problem. Uh, so um, highlights so far? Man, I don't know. I mean, you know, how do you start out, a, you know, how do you rank a trip when within the first hour you have two hours of getting here you have a bushmaster already in the bag so where do you go from there <laughs> yeah that's the earliest we've gotten one so yeah i think you know for me some of the ranatomaya the three species ranatomaya so far those are cool little frogs and i'm pretty overwhelmed by all the hylids in general which is yeah. why i keep going what is this mike what is this mike so <laughs> trying to keep yeah. it all straight but yeah yeah well, glad you're having a good time and right. you're a world a well-traveled person so uh We'll get into that a little bit, but uh, uh, first I want to, uh, can you give us some background on uh, where you live, uh, you know, um, what you do for a living, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm currently in Kansas, which is my home state. Um, I'm the wildlife diversity coordinator for the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. Um, and not to go too far down that road, I would 
suggest people maybe go back and listen to your episode with Priya Nanjapa. She went into all that background around state wildlife grants and state wildlife action plans and Recovering America's Wildlife Act and all that stuff. And so I work a lot with that. I oversee Kansas State Wildlife Action Plan and our state wildlife grants and basically do a lot of contract work with universities and everything to drive research and monitoring in the state. So. Okay. Uh, well, it's great you bring up uh, the show with Priya. Um, so you're one of those uh, people behind the scenes who are fighting it out for our 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 wildlife our flora and fauna yeah yeah somebody's got to do it <laughs> somebody's got to do it <laughs> yeah somebody's got to be have the meetings and arrange the talks mm-hmm. and the negotiations and the plans and all of that it's got to be done and you're one of the good guys yeah yeah i don't think a lot of people realized going in early on how much people management goes along with with wildlife management for sure yeah and i i can't remember the exact quote there's an old aldo leopold quote about wildlife management being like 10% wildlife and 80, you know, 90% people or something along those yeah. lines. So, yeah. So thanks. Appreciate the work you do. And shout out to Priya again. I get a lot of comments on an episode about people say, you know, they say, mm-hmm. I didn't realize, you know, w- what's going on behind the scenes and how important this, this work is. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Tell us about your, your academic bra- background. So, yeah, I started out, you know, I grew up in Kansas, went to Emporia State University, a little town up on the edge of the Flint Hills. So I'm sure a lot of people listening are probably familiar with Flint Hills in Kansas if if you're into tricolors and all that stuff. So uh, I can close my eyes and picture it right now. now yeah. So it was, it was a great place. I fortunately passed. I mean, even though I love biology, I struggled. Like my first spring in the Flint Hills, I struggled pretty hard for, you know, some people party their way out of college, and I almost hurt my way out of <laughs> college. So, <laughs> I think some of our people can out there can identify with that. Yeah, yeah. And then I kind of, I didn't know what I wanted to do for sure when I finished my bachelor's. I thought I wanted to go in the zoo field, and as we were talking the other night, had a couple interviews and realized that it'd be be a struggle to pay the bills going that route at the time, and um. Just happened to help out a former grad student from Emporia State, Paul Shipman, went down to Oklahoma State, and I'd helped him out on some alligator snap and turtle work, and they got a contract from Oklahoma Department of Wildlife and Conservation to do alligator snapping turtle surveys in Oklahoma, and so they offered me a grad assistantship to to do that project, and that turned into a huge project and sort of changed my trajectory all the way around, so got my master's there. Went out to, got a job with Arizona Game and Fish Department as their uh, desert tortoise biologist, and I did a lot of desert tortoise work, um, as well as uh, Sonoida mud turtle work, which we can talk about later, but it's a cool little mud turtle that only occurs in one pond in the U.S. and one small, couple of small river segments in Mexico, so um, pretty unique little critter. And then I got a wild hair and went back for my Ph.D. for some reason. So I ended up at Texas A&M and did some turtle community ecology for that. And yeah, so. So is it safe to say the work you were doing with the turtles led to your your getting a PhD, furthering I, on and, and yeah, getting into it deeper? It kind of helped center what I wanted to do. So, um, you know, going back to my, my early work, the alligator snapping turtles in Oklahoma, and it kind of helped shape my my view on conservation in general is a lot of conservation projects are single species focused. 
And so, you know, we, myself and some colleagues, you know, we've been working with alligator snap turtle conservation in Kansas and Oklahoma since the nineties. And so, um, and like I said, very single species focus, but one of the things I was interested in is how did this turtle fit into the greater community? You know, there's eight other turtle species it's coexisting with. And Oh, okay. And so over time, you know, we're finding that there is, there's habitat partitioning among, um, you know, between the two species of snapping turtles and between map turtles. And when you have several species, uh, must turtles and mud turtles living together, there's like actually like habitat partitioning and divisions cool. going on. And can you talk a little bit about maybe the, the habitat partitioning that takes place between alligator snappers and regular snappers? Yeah. I mean, if, you know, most people that are familiar with common snappers know you can catch them anywhere, ponds, creeks, and alligator snappers. Highways. Highways, yeah. <laughs> and alligator snappers tend to be a bit more what we call loading, flowing waters, rivers, by you know, and then backwaters off of rivers and by, you know. Is flowing bayous. water a big deal, a big requirement for them? Uh, in some places. It depends on, uh, I think in some of the more southeastern states that have bigger swampy bayous, they tend to use those more. Okay. Uh, you know, like Oklahoma, there's not a lot of bayous in Oklahoma, so they're in the rivers. So. Okay. Uh, but where we catch, it's kind of interesting where we catch alligator snappers. If there's a lot, if they're there in numbers, we don't catch many common snappers in the river. You go off okay. into the ponds nearby and they're there. Yeah. And but, they're there because they, they disperse their eggs by traveling a bit over land. And so that kind of spreads them to the other bodies of water. Yeah. And they'll get up. Common snappers will just get up and move sometimes too. Okay. And yeah. That's why you see them on the roads and. Yeah. Um. But in rivers where there are no alligator snappers, we tend to catch more common snappers in those rivers. Okay. All right. And we see the same thing in like areas where um, razorback musk turtles and common musk turtles overlap. So razorback musk turtles definitely like flowing water. For sure. And if there's razorback musk turtles in the river or in the flowing stretches of water, we never catch common musk turtles. But oh. you step off into the backwater or the ponds and they're then That's where the stink pots are. But then like Kansas, where we just have one, you know, all we have are stink pots. We catch them in rivers, ponds. It doesn't matter. They they're, they inhabit any body of water. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, just trying to take all those things into account when you begin to, you know, especially if you're getting into releases and translocations and, you know, how is this going to influence the existing population of critters and what so may you're this consider, like? you're considering relocation at, at a greater depth right now. Right. Okay. I think, you know, and this, I, you know, I, I know we talked no controversy. This will be the only controversial thing I think today. I think, <laughs> I think if you read the literature too, I think some people have tried to oversimplify conservation, conservation reintroductions. And that's why so many for different species have failed in the past. They haven't taken those taking the time to take those deeper dives into the species requirements before. And maybe some of this habitat partitioning has an effect as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to circle back just for a minute to what you talked about. You mentioned that a lot of conservation plans and efforts center on a single species, but, but if that's, you know, there's also this umbrella species concept and mm -hmm. isn't, isn't that sometimes a workable plan for something that if you if you conserve this animal then you're conserving a whole bunch of other animals because you're you're uh maintaining that habitat i mean is that 
how, how does that fit into this? No, no, that's good. That's good. Um, no, you're really correct. You're very correct there on the umbrella species. And some of what I mean is, um, so you go out there, you get focused on one species. And so if say you're turtle trapping, we'll stick with turtles. Cause that's what I know. I'm out trapping for alligator snapping turtles. You know, I'm also catching six, seven other species. Okay. And sometimes those aren't always, you know, the data collected there is pretty minimal. Um, but I think throughout history, we've seen that, you know, sometimes we overlook common species and then one day they're not common anymore and we miss the boat and we don't know why. So my focus now is if you're doing a single species study, but you're able to sample the whole community, then collect all that data on all those other, other species. Um, and, uh, Well, I seem to talk about keeping common species common a lot on this show. <laughs> yeah, it's the way to go. I mean, if we can, you know. Yeah, yeah. Instead of doing, what I guess, what we call the triage effort and dumping a lot of money and some last-ditch efforts at times for... yeah. Feeding condors with puppets. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We don't need to do that with alligator snappers. Well, that might make life interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Yeah, it could be pretty entertaining. You know, we tell the uh, veteran alligator snapper researchers by how many fingers they have left. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's just a joke for us. I got all mine. I still got <laughs> all 10. All right. So yeah. you're a good one. <laughs> I've only been bit once and it's by a little guy, so. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, those uh, uh, they're they're painful. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Very good. So you've you've moved um, from uh, this the snapping turtle alligator snapping turtle work, and oh, we've got a plane flying over. Who would have thought we're in the middle of the Amazon and there's we are, but we're we're on the flyway for Iquitos. Oh, so gotcha. a couple that couple times a day we'll get a plane that comes over. Yeah, at at least at this field station. Mm -hmm. Um. So after that, you moved on to your master's work, and that was with, remind me again? So that the alligator snapper stuff was my master's. Oh, okay. And then okay. I went out and did, uh, worked as a desert tortoise biologist for Arizona Game and That's Fish right. Department. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Totally different. Totally different world. Um, they actually, you know, I'm a short, stocky guy. I mean, you can't see that on a podcast, but, um, you know, I was used to working out of a boat, doing all the alligator snapper turtle work, and- um, you know, which was great. I would compact, big shoulders, you know, throwing hay when I was younger and yeah. pulling up big nets full of turtles. And then I show up out there in Arizona. And for those of you that don't know, Sonoran Desert tortoises, they like steep, rocky slopes. They live up under the boulders and then boulder piles. And I guess a couple of the the long-term volunteers were taking bets on how long I'd last. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So, Steep yeah. Steep hills. Yeah. Heat. Heat. And, of course, I started in June, which is the hottest month in Arizona, typically. So so there was a little of adjustment period for you. Yes, there was. There was. Thank, thank God the house I was living in at the time. Well, most houses built up to a certain time period in Phoenix had pools, and thank God for that. Oh, wow. That's where I spent a lot of time when I wasn't. <laughs> Come home from a hard day, mm -hmm. work of climbing slopes to look for tortoises and uh, get in the pool. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was hard work. It took me that most of that summer to adjust. But really interesting, just from the standpoint, from a behavioral standpoint, you can sit and watch tortoises where you can't sit and watch an alligator snapping turtle. This is true. Uh, even if you were on the bottom of the river, 
You, you still couldn't watch them because <laughs> you couldn't see them. And I can't see your hand in front yeah. of your face most times. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you got to sit and watch their feeding and, and uh, social behaviors and things like that? Yeah. So we did a lot of work. Uh, my first supervisor was Roy Alvo Murray, and um, he is did about a 10-year uh, reproductive study looking at effects of rainfall and on egg production and forage availability and that kind of thing. Wow. Okay. That sounds like a lot intensive work. Yeah, it was really cool. We we had a big volunteer base. We had about 15, 16 females that we had radial telemetered, and we followed them all year long, hmm. and then we also some males. Um, and the, during the reproductive season, we'd get a big group of volunteers. We'd set up a base camp, and we would go out and find the tortoises, have a volunteer bring a tortoise back. Uh, we had an x-ray tech from the Smithsonian then that came out, he was stationed out of Las Vegas and he would come down about once a month and we'd ultrasound them. And if there's follicles, we would x-ray them, see how many eggs they had. And then, you know, we're taking rainfall data and that sort of thing to look at. So you use ultrasound to determine if they have follicles and an x-rays to do the count? Correct. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, and then so you're also doing dietary studies and and uh, you, you said rainfall, uh, measuring rainfall and mm-hmm. keeping track of what what's happening to the uh, external environment. Yeah, we actually did a big big study with the Smithsonian, um, where they came out and again used a lot of volunteers. Um, basically, what we would do, and in, in, in the spring and fall activity or spring and late summer activity seasons. Is we go out, we pick you know a particular tortoise, and you'd sit on that tortoise. And when that tortoise moves, you walk along, find the tortoise with a pair of little mini binos, and then we had to get pretty decent at plan ID pretty quick because you would watch what they ate, how many bites they took, or what they ate, and then somebody would come along behind you, and like every five or about five meters, they do a little quadrat to see what plants were available, like what proportions of each species of plant was available. So you're looking at what they were eating, what and they were choosing versus what yeah, was available. Yeah, the choice. Yeah. So that sounds different or new. I don't, I don't hear much about that kind of work. What 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 choices do they have and what choices do they make? They were, they're hitting legumes a lot, which are high in protein. And if you're herbivore, that's, that's a biggie, is getting plenty of protein. Um. In wetter years, as salt content varies in plants, and it's weird. I mean, don't really know if the tortoises actually know this, but they do tend to choose when when the choice is available. They tend to also choose plants with a little lower salt of content. Okay. Um, wet years, it's not as critical. Dry years, it is because they probably don't have a good mechanism for uh, excreting the salt in their urates. Right, and it's well, it's so dry yes. that they'll actually they can actually hit a point where they're almost isotonic. Oh, and, okay. Um, you'll see them. Explain what isotonic means. Well, basically, I mean, um, oh, I gotta go back to my intro. <laughs> but basically, their water and their salt balance is like you know even they can't. Oh, they can't adjust that salt balance. They can't anymore. shed any more of the of that. Okay. Right, because at that point they're gonna lose all the water they have. Okay. And then, so what you see, if it rains, it's really interesting. They'll basically drink, they'll be drinking and urinating at the same time to flush 
all that salt out. I've heard that. Yeah. Somebody told me that once. Yeah. Okay. And now I know why. Right. Okay. Fascinating. And that's why people are very adamant about if you see a tortoise in the wild, a defense mechanism is to pee. Yes. And so if if you pick them up and they urinate, then you basically decrease their availability to forage because they they're it's going to tip to where they have more salt than water. It's going to screw that balance up. And, right. Well, this is a good message for our listening audience. Most right. of them are pretty savvy about this stuff anyway, but right. it's a good thing to know. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we did a lot of that. Um, I did a few population surveys at some different sites. Just So I'm trying, to pi- I'm trying to picture this in my mind's eye. The, you know, you're following a tortoise around. You can't get too close because you don't mm-hmm. want to alter the tortoise's behavior. Yeah. So you have to stay back, and then you have, but you have to use binoculars. Uh, really hot days, or it's probably morning time, I imagine, mm-hmm. or afternoon. So yeah. maybe not the hottest part of the day, but but then you've got the next person coming around to do the uh the quadrate uh what, do you, what is that direct yeah the quadrate yeah quadrate uh, analysis of the plants and all of that. Mm-hmm. So this sounds like a very focused day. Yes, <laughs> yes, we do ten days straight basically of that, and we were usually pretty wiped. I remember one of the sites we used, uh, you know, and it's a desert. So the best time to sleep in the desert in the summertime is about the time you're waking up to go out and get set on a tortoise because okay. you want to get there before they wake up and come out of the burrow. Which which time is? So, you know, usually around four or five, it's starting to cool down enough oh. where you can really sleep. And then about five, five thirty, you're crawling out of bed so you okay. can grab, you know, get all your gear together and. You know, the sun's coming up between 6 and 6.30 and get out there and get on your tortoise. And I just remember one 10-day trip. We were at a site um, in Ironwood Forest National Monument, and it's like an hour and a half drive back to Phoenix. And we had to switch drivers twice on the way home. Just oh, to, just so tired. Just so tired, yeah, yeah. Worn down. Thank goodness for a swimming pool. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it was it was a long week. That's for a long ten days. But wow. it was great. It was great to be able to do that intensive a work with a species. And and what did what did you learn from uh following the round and doing this analysis of what they choose to eat and I mean you you said they'd prefer prefer uh, prefer uh legumes and things mm-hmm. like that. was there anything uh different or unusual that came up in what you found? Not, I mean, not necessarily, just kind of interest. you know, interesting looking at their selective foraging and trying to maintain the salt balance and everything. Um, does the, does the plant community affect where they, what burrows they occupy? Uh, no, not necessarily. And that's, uh, another paper I'm slowly teasing the data out of when I have the time. Okay. Um, this isn't a side note. This is interesting too, is you're, you're way beyond this now, Yeah. but you're still... This is still a, a project going forward that you will eventually publish. Right, right. Yeah, okay. And we've we've gotten we, we, we do have several publications out of this project now. It's just okay. you know, as you move on and you're busy doing things, sometimes it takes a little time to get sure. okay. written up. But you know, there are there's invasive plant issues. Okay. Also in Arizona, red brome, uh what's uh buffalo grass, Sahara mustard. And as some of those plant community shift, it's going to have a huge effect on herbivore diets and that sort of thing. Have the and tortoises adapted to eating some of the new plants? They, I, they, I don't think so. I don't think the new plants are 
um, are as nu nutritionally, uh, just total loss for words here, are as good for the tortoises nutritionally okay. as the native stuff. And Yeah. Um, I, the only one I know that you mentioned was buffalo grass. I know that's a huge problem everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere yeah. it's introduced. So Yeah. Mm. And it, well, you know, and it turns the deserts a, a fire negative environment. It does not respond well to wildfire, but buffalo grass loves wildfire, so... You get these big oh boy patches of buffalo grass in the desert, and they catch fire. And then, you know, you burn off like saguaro and all that kind of stuff. You can lose a lot of yeah, a lot of the the native plants that way. And they they you know they they won't come back, or it takes decades for them to come back. So I see. Yeah. As as far as let's say um, the tortoise finds a favorite mm -hmm. food uh, plant, do they eat as much of it within reach? Uh, you know, or does a tortoise kind of graze from one plant to the next? What, well, what's kind of their, their it, it, it's kind of interesting. Pattern? So they would, they would walk along and I think the genus, it's not, a, there's a genus, I want to say it was lotus. It's not like what we think of as lotus, but a, a little legume in that, in that genus. And sorry, it's been a while. So if I got that wrong, I apologize. That's oh, okay. It's been a decade or more since we did that. We're we <laughs> we're in Peru. And we've we're operating on four or five hours of sleep a night right now. So exactly, but <laughs> you're allowed say, to yeah be a little fuzzy. <laughs> but say you know say there's a species of lotus or something like that, and uh, you know we the tortoise would walk along and you see it kind of look around and it'd walk over and it'd find one and it'd eat it down to the ground. Then it might walk a little farther, and then it sees another one, and it'll eat it down to the ground. So okay. it's just kind of moseying and grazing. And and what it, do you suspect they do? They identify this is a probably maybe this is a a good question. I don't know. Sometimes I have good questions. Is <laughs> do they identify it by sight or by smell? That is a good question. I I wonder if it might. I mean, they do smell. I mean, they do use their sense of smell a lot. Um, they have scent glands and they can, males can track females sure. that way and stuff. So there could be a smell to it. I wonder. I, I bring I, this up because I, I keep red for tortoises yeah. and, and they're, they smell everything and they, I've seen them, you know, I occasionally graze them in my yard and there are certain things they mm -hmm. won't eat. Right. And they, they seem to smell it first and then they, they just, instead of mm -hmm. eating everything green, they're. Yeah. They only eat 85% of what's green. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought maybe it might be the same thing with tortoises. It could be. And, you know, and you'll see them, you know, captives sometimes take tinnity bites of things and then like, okay. you know, say, yeah, maybe that's not what I want. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, but yeah, I think smell has a lot to do with it. They use it a lot to, to navigate, find each other, that sort of thing. So. Wow. So you learned a lot there and um, probably learned to wear a hat. Yes. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, and then uh, how long were you out there working for for uh, in Arizona? So in Arizona, I've done two stints in Arizona. For Game and Fish, it was about five years. Okay. Yeah. All right. So. After that, you moved, did you move back to Kansas? No, I went or? back to Texas for grad school. Or to Texas. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, after I finished my PhD, I got a teaching job at a, Small university in Missouri, Lincoln University. But unfortunately, I was there about three years, and my second year in, I didn't realize it at the time, but they're having some financial issues. And then I think they eventually let about a third of their faculty off and me at a new hire. I was kind of told my head was on the... Oh, so they didn't tell the new guy. No. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, brother. you know, I ended up back... I went back out west for a couple of years and did some tortoise consulting just to pay the bills and then 
this job in Kansas popped up. So cool. Yeah. And you, you've got a wife and uh, kids. And so you picked that all up along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Your... Yeah. I went to, went to get a PhD and ended up with, you know, a wife. So. Even more. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah, but no, it, it, that's been great. That's been great. But sure. But that's, that's a lot. It is. It <laughs> let's is. not, let's not beat around the bush. That's, no. <laughs> that's a lot to start to get married and start raising a family and, and, mm-hmm. and work on a PhD. And, yeah. Oof, man. Yeah. Lots going on there. Yeah, sometimes I wonder about start having kids in my forties, but yeah, for the most hey. part, it's been good. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. And then so you moved back to Kansas and mm-hmm. and got a job. What what was your? What did you go back to Kansas to work on? Yeah, I, th- it's this job I have now. The wall. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Very good. But you also have some side gigs you've been um, part of, as as many people like you do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And so you want to talk about some of those a little bit? Yeah, we can go back to the. So when I was in Arizona, um, one of my it's 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 funny. One of the guys that was setting bets on whether I live live that first <laughs> summer, he and I turned out to be great friends. Um, he's an old, older gentleman, basically long term volunteer for the Tortoise Project. Um, he had retired early and basically was driving his wife crazy. So she ran into some game and fish employees and asked if they could find something for her husband to do. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> yeah. So that's how we ended up on the tortoise project. And then he and I seemed to click pretty well after a while. And so you're buddies now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so he's a big hunter, um, and his brother-in-law is a big hunter. And they'd made a couple trips to Africa, Southern Africa, to hunt. Um, and there's a couple big trade shows every year that they come to in the West. One's in Phoenix, one's in Vegas, and several of those. And so, yeah, when the when the hunting guides in South Africa would come over to the U.S., they would stay with my friend Jim. Okay. And so Jim invited me out for dinner with him a couple of times. He goes, oh, you got to meet these guys. You'll like them. And we were chatting, and just one day out of, con- you know, just general conversation, they're like, yeah, the hunting is good. You know, we mainly just hunt in the wintertime. But he goes, I've been trying to think of ways to come up with income in the summertime. And I'm like, hey, you, you should have people come out and, you know, go herping. And he'd never heard of that, you know. And oh. He's like, he goes, no, people wouldn't pay money to come find snakes. You know, I say this now, what, how there's like 14 of us out here doing that right now. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, so he had never even heard of that. Um, and so we kept in contact via email. And, and he's finally, he's like, the next year he was out and he goes, tell you what. You come out for a couple weeks, see what you can find, and then we'll decide whether it's worthwhile to do or not. It's like, fair enough. So me and my buddy, he's a long-term buddy of mine, Dave Ligon, um, who did have done a ton of alligator snap turtle work with. Uh-huh. So we went out there. And so we were out, th- and what was cool to me back up is when we get out there, Donnie has a close friend named Willem Koch. And Willem is actually a really cool... It's a general naturalist. He owns a hunting concession, but he's made an effort to list all the birds on his property, all the herps he's seen on his property. He's interested in everything. Interested in everything. Okay. And he goes, oh, we need, in the free state, I have a friend you should meet. So Day and I went over, we spent 
about a week on Donnie's property and then four or five days on Willem's property. And I think we picked up like 55 species while we were there. Okay. Not bad for a first go around. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been about average, to be honest, for where we were. Um, And we hit it. That was early December. So kind of the transition from spring to summer for them. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, it was Donnie's like, do you think that's enough? And I'm like, oh, no, this is plenty. Because, you know, we saw... A lot of the megafauna there, too. Um, you can't count that out. No, no, yeah. no. Um, and Donnie's old place, which has unfortunately been sold, was great because it had a river that he was adjacent to Kruger National Park along one of the rivers that flows into Kruger. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could go out early in the morning and, like, I had jet lag the first time morning we were there, so I woke up at, like, 3.30 oh, a.m., yeah. and so... I, I took a little headlamp with a red light on it and set out on this little open dining area reading a book. And there's like lions across, roaring across the river and like hippos in the river and that Sounds sort of thing. Sounds pretty sweet. Yeah. So, so it, it definitely adds a different twist to her being yeah. over there. So, um, yeah, it worked out. So I ended up doing about another, guiding about another seven trips over there up until COVID hit. So you did one every year? Is that about every other year is how it worked out. And that's probably better for you too. It is. It is. Uh so every other year and then mm-hmm. you bring how many people would you bring over there? Ideally five to six is good. Okay. I think I, the largest group I took was ten. Okay. Um, so you just kind of did this on your own? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it was just because I wanted to go. I've always had a fascination with Africa okay. to begin with and um, pretty okay. familiar. I remember when I finally got a hold of an early copy of Bill Branch's, you know, amphibians or reptiles of South Africa. Yes. So I memorized that thing. So okay. it was, yeah, that's always a place I wanted to go. And so it's been great. And, and so it just occurred to me too, that you're unique, uniquely aware of what we're doing down here to facilitate your, your, yeah. your happiness and fulfillment. When, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I'm very, yeah, it's like totally, I'd, you know, I love, I'm glad you and I have had some chances to hike together. Yeah. Um, I think we've got a pretty similar pace in the forest. So, yeah. um, but you know, I mean, with you and Matt running around, I know you guys are busy because I've been on that end of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all, we know, we know this, what, what it takes. So it's yeah, interesting. Right. Right. Okay. Um, and, uh, so COVID kind of put that in your, uh, back and, um, mm-hmm. so maybe you'll pick it up again. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe. Okay. I know, I know we've all been talking here some, so. Yeah. You kind of got us fired up about it. Yeah. So yeah, no, I would like to, I mean, it's, it's tough because, um, going back again, some ancient history here, talking about life listing and that sort of thing. And, you yeah. know, some of the early, you and I emailing each other unknowingly back in the 90s. Yeah, maybe 93 or 94. Right. Yeah. Because you had a little website on life listing and I was just getting into it. No, I really want to go back to Africa because there's other sites there. Um, uh-huh. And I, I will say this, I probably don't have, for my age, like if I think about, well, comparing my, I shouldn't do this, but like comparing myself, Matt's and I are pretty close to the same age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... I have not traveled ex- as extensively as he has, uh-huh. but it's kind of like you guys in Peru. I keep going back to the same places over and over and over again. But yeah, and, and so I'd like to travel. I'd like to hit some new places and see uh-huh. new things. But 
there are some cool advantages to really getting to know a place though too. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I mean, there's, uh, figuring out the herpet fauna is one, but right. making, uh, lifelong friendships is another, yeah. right? So you're yeah. sure you've done some of that. I've yeah. done it here. Right. Uh, that's, and uh, I'm, I'm friends with some very fine people down here. Um, and it, it, the other thing I, I want to backtrack just a bit on is give us a, a you don't have to list the 50 species, but what, what are the highlights in terms of herp? So uh, things you can find as a herper. Yeah. I'll, I'll kind of break it down. We do, do the trip in two segments. Um, so we landed Johannesburg. The worst part is getting there. Obviously, it's a long flight, about 17 hours from Atlanta. Land in Johannesburg. Villain picks us up. Um, and so then it's about another three-hour drive to Villem's place. So uh, Okay, that's a long couple of days. Yeah, yeah. And then so we, we leave Johannesburg, drive about an hour. For all of you that have been to South Africa, we hit a Wimpy's for a cheeseburger because we've been eating. <laughs> that's that's the cheeseburger chain in South Africa. Um, so we hit that. And usually get pull into Villem's about 9 or 10 that night, depending on when our flights come in. And then, you know, everybody's wired at that point because you've either been on a plane or in a vehicle. So we'll do a short. Well, there's a couple. Wired and tired. Wired and tired, Yeah. yeah. And if the rains have been good, there's a couple ponds right near his house, um, right near the lodge where we stayed. Full Angolan river frogs, uh, bubbling casinas, uh, wheels running frogs. Um, so, you know, we catch a few of those right off the bat. Okay. And so he's like about, again, let's go back and take that middle edge of the Flint Hills and then jack it up to about 6,000 feet elevation. And okay. this, these big, huge, long sweeping plateaus and lots of rock. And so lots of uh, Drakensberg crag lizards. Cool. Um, Keep talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Occasional puff adder. Um, the one that's eluded us, it's supposed, they have a real spotty distributions and we haven't turned them up. On his property, but they should be there. Berg adders. That's the one I Ooh. keep going after, and I can't find yet. But they're uh, there. They're there somewhere. Okay. Uh, both species of egg eaters now so far on his place. Do you see puff adders every yeah. trip? Not every nearly? trip. They're actually been kind of tough sometimes. Okay. Um, uh, some places are pretty abundant, uh -huh. but he's so high. I don't think they're as dense. They're there, okay. but um, we've seen a few there. Uh, ring calls. Oh, that's a spitting cobra. Yeah, right? it's a spitting. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. the hematodus. So I've actually had to wash my beard out once after photographing one. So oh boy. Yeah. Okay. So come on your tour, you better bring some goggles. Yeah, bring glasses because you're either going to be in Rinkhall territory or Mozambique spitting cobra territory. So so two spitting cobras. Two spitting cobras. Yeah. Holy and, cow! And okay. I've seen a few Mozambiques over the years. Okay. So you know we go high. Um, and if we can get access, we've been able to get access every time. There's a couple, there's a sun gazer colony not too far away. Nice. Which is kind of cool. I mean, big lizard prairie dog equivalents, essentially. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got um, you. Yeah. So, a lot of that kind of more montane specialty stuff. Uh huh. And then we try to go somewhere low. Um, gotcha. Down in some low, low thorn scrub country. Um, 
So, and, and again, it changes up different crag lizards. The crag lizards, the, the cordialids are pretty specious over there. Okay. And then um, some of my favorites are the flat lizards, the platysaurus. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, in some ways, the lizard diversity over there is, is pretty intense. It's, I mean, about like Arizona. Okay. So lizards are easy to come by. Lots of different species of lizards. Gek, a lot of geckonids. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then a couple species of monitors, both Niles and rock or white throat monitors. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of that. Um, a lot of black mambas. Um, okay. Most black mamba sightings are like coach whip sightings. They're just kind of. There it sp- goes. There it goes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've caught a couple small ones. I like to leave the big ones alone, but. Okay. Um, sometimes we get a big one and see one in a tree and we can just. Get some shots of it up there basking or that yeah. sort of thing. So that would be cool. Yeah. yeah. I'd bring my lizard lens. Yeah. 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 So we had one, I think one of the cooler trips was we we hit a place up on some ecotonal habitat between that that acacia thorn scrub and uh the Kalahari. So I had a lot of red sand coming in and we're able to pick up horned adders there. Oh Vitus cornuta. Nice. And uh, that's where I've got finally that's my Fifth or sixth trip I've been after amphisbanids, and I finally got zygaspus there. So that was pretty cool. That's special. Yeah, that was That's a biggie. A, oof, oof. That was a biggie. So wow. So the folks out there listening are all are all drooling. Yeah. At this point, <laughs> <laughs> let's bring it on. Let's yeah. let's do it again. It's it, and you get some tortoises, right? Leopard tortoises. Leopard tortoises, and um, got a couple species of canixies over. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Belliana? Belliana, or I can't remember, Belliana or Speccii. I think it's Speccii. Either one would and be then welcome. And Natalensis. Oh, okay. So. Very cool little tortoises. Yeah, yeah. so we're kind of more east, so we're kind of out of the all the Samobates and Homopus and Okay, other the padlopers the, and the, all, those, yeah. all those little guys. Okay. One of these days I need to make it that way. I mean, I definitely want to explore Southern Africa more, you know, the- the the Western Cape and up into Namibia just need to find some time. So wow, okay, very exciting stuff. <laughs> oh, it was fun. It was it was a blast. It was yeah. The first couple of trips, I'm glad I had devoured Branch when I did. But uh, yeah, but it's it's honestly it's kind of reminiscent of the U.S. and even here in that from those early copies like Branch to Johan Marias is kind of released the last few field guides and. The taxonomy is just explode. I mean, just lots of lots of splitting and shifting sure. things around, both on the reptile and amphibian side. So, okay, I think the number of new species on the reptile side's grown like by 120, 130 or more species. So, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. you start uh, doing work. It's easier to do work in developed countries before you move into the harder to reach places. Right. Right. Got so. it. What about the charismatic megafauna? Yeah. Um, so Willem's place, it's kind of, he has several species of antelope that he kind of specializes in. Black wildebeest. Uh, Those are handsome animals. Very handsome yeah. animals. Yeah. A springbok, hartebeest, gimsbok. All and, the box. All the box. And, <laughs> um, He's, he has, um, you know, these big, like I said, have all these big plateaus and big sweeping plains. And it's, um, you can go sit up on a ridge and look down across the flats and it just looks like, like 
you know, the murmuration of birds, like, you know, starlings, except it's this big herds of host stock just moving back oh, wow. and forth across. Very cool. Across the plains. And so, you know, they're not really much dangerous game there. There is a cool, cool wetland. We'll go herp once in a while near there. It's got a big herd of Cape Buffalo. So that's like my favorite. I love Buffalo. But so kind of- if one should desire to go to the wetland and look for frogs, <clears throat> is it is it sketchy? I mean, you have um, Cape Buffalo. Do you have other predators that might try to uh, nab you while you're no, looking for frogs? It's or? just mainly keeping track of where the herd is. Um, there's no lions or anything there. Um, All right. You know, I've never... There have been some ranches that have lions, and you kind of... So, you know, and some of those places, we, you know, like here, everybody at night, everybody scatters and does their own thing. Right. There, there's places where we can't do that. Sure. Okay. It's just, we've got to, you know, I try to make it so everybody's in sight of, you, of somebody else. Okay. So you All can't right. just, just to, uh, it's one of, well, I'll put it to you this way. It's one of the first times I've been herping with a 458 wind mag, you know. Oh, <laughs> okay. Just for, yeah. just for safety's sake. Yeah. We've never had to, you know, but my, like my buddy Donnie, we were hiking along the riverfront just herping one afternoon and uh on the other side of the river is this young bull elephant just munching away on some awesome. reeds and we all sit down on the bank to watch him and so the elephant decided to come on across the river and see what we were up to okay and so donnie had us back on down the road and he had a he had somebody with a vehicle not far away so they kind of drove the vehicle up to pick us up and he just kind of stood there and you know, just he talked to the he. You know, he had he 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 grew up around him, so he's just kind of talking to the elephant, letting him know we were there. And okay, the elephants are like, oh, he was just curious, wanted to check out and see what we were. So okay, so, so yeah, not too bad, not too bad. So you'd see some elephants and yeah, I mean, not a lot outside of the parks, but yeah, okay. we did, we did. And part of your uh, part of the thing you do, you go to the parks. Yeah, we do a day or two in the parks, which is awesome. You get to see the megafauna. You just yeah. can't really herp or anything. Yeah, but if you're going all that way, you really mm-hmm. want an op- at least a day or two to see the 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 cool st- yeah, mammals. And right, right. It's just birds. frustrating. Yeah, it's just frustrating. I've got two or three lifers in the parks, but I, I wasn't able to photograph or anything. You so. can't exit your vehicle, right? Right, right. Yeah, if you get caught exiting your vehicle, it usually doesn't go well. I mean, they're not going to kick you out. You'll just get a fine and everything. So. Um, or if you get caught outside your vehicle by an animal, it usually doesn't go well. <laughs> no, no. No, once at Kruger, uh, we were joking, we got a flat tire. So we're all standing on the side of the road changing the tire. And there was pretty flesh. It was on a dirt road, and it was pretty fresh line tracks kind of. Moseying down okay. the road, so everybody's looking in a different direction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'll tell you okay. a funny lion story, actually. If, okay. If you want, real quick, and you can cut this if it's too long. But we're on a private ranch, and we had some birders with us, and one of them, she really wanted to see an eagle owl. Was one of the ones on her list. So we come around the corner, and the headlight hits. There's a male lion, I think two or three females, and some cubs. And one of the females had an eagle owl hanging out of her Oh, mouth. my gosh. And it was still flopping, so it's still alive. Lifer. Lifer. Like, there's your eagle owl. <laughs> oh, that's, that's <laughs> terrible, and yet it's somehow funny. Yeah, and then, um, then it was funny. We're watching him, and so we're sitting here in the truck. I'm in the cab with my buddy Donnie. <clears throat> Everybody else is in the back of the truck. 
and taking pictures, watching the lions. And the male wanders off to the left. And there's a group of trees off to the left. And uh, Donnie goes, you want to screw with him? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, watch this. And he turns the lights on the truck off. And we pull up about 50, 60 yards and do a 180. And he goes, you ready? I'm like, yeah. And he turns the light on and that male lion is standing where the truck was just a couple minutes ago. Oh. So he was curious about us. So he was circling us to see what we were and what we were up to. So. Wow. So everybody, who's messing with whom? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Everybody in the back of the truck was like, oh, you know, wow. once they caught on to what. And Donnie's like, aren't you glad we're in the cab? And I'm like, yeah, I was about to roll up the window and just let them fit <laughs> for themselves. Wow. Um, well, that sounds exciting, too, because it, you certainly wouldn't want to miss opportunities to see the, the big, some big cats and some big uh, mammal, um, you know, like elephants and right, things like that. Right. I don't know if they have giraffes there or not. Oh, yeah. Giraffes are actually yeah. pretty abundant. Okay. Uh, not, you know, I wouldn't say abundant, but yeah, you'll definitely see a lot. So, okay. Well, they're, they're hard to miss. Yeah. You definitely, it's way different seeing them there than in a zoo. You appreciate them more for yeah. sure. Yeah. I can see that. How long were your trips when you were doing? Usually this? about 10 days on the ground. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So just keep moving from one spot to the next. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Pretty good. Usually pretty beat about like here when you're all done. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different, it's a heat, but it's not a drier heat, right? Yeah. I, I sitting here in the rainforest, sometimes I miss, I I realize I I prefer some of the drier environments sometimes, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, here the heat can really, it can really pound you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I hope you get to do go back and do some more of these. It sounds exciting, and of course, it sounds like you know it sounds like an exciting place for me to go eventually. Yeah, at some for point. Sure. So for sure. Um, but let, let's kind of bring it back. Um, and you've you've traveled to other places too, right? You, yeah, yeah. I think you went to China, right? India or, or India, India. That yeah, was yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what what did you go there for? So again, just kind of give a. A little back history to that. Um, 06, 2006. So, well, actually, in the late 90s, there's kind of what they call the Asian turtle crisis. Um, yes. Turtles became big in the Asian food markets. Uh, a lot of the local turtles disappearing rapidly over there. A lot of turtles being exported out of the U.S. to China to, yeah. to meet those demands. Um, and there's also, you know, and then... Also, a lot of turtles being smuggled out of China over here for pet trade and other things, and uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of confiscations. And so, just this group formed called Turtle Survival Alliance in two thousand one. So everybody jokes about you know that acronym TSA, but I think our TSA was before the other TSA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so they formed in two thousand one to help address these issues, and is. Initially, a lot of zoo people and private breeders. But by 06, it really started to expand to a lot of turtle researchers, conservation scientists, that sort of thing. Yeah, at first it was the people who could maybe, I, I know some veterinarians were involved, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea was it was a big confis- confiscation. You'd get people that could identify the turtles. Right. And then people who would go in and try to, uh, I guess the the top level were to save the turtles, but mm-hmm. you know you start to have to... Uh, uh, go in and, and uh, 
you know, check their health and, and, you know, they had to be treated for parasites because obviously all these turtles were carrying a parasite load. So you put them under stress and you take them out of their environment and they're sitting in a sack for three weeks. And so, right. um, the ones that survive, you have to treat, you know, start treatments on them to, you know, hopefully keep them alive. And then mm-hmm. you have the issue of, well, what do we do with these and where do they go? And, um, how do we, how do we make something good happen from all of this? this mess exactly you know. exactly yeah i you know i was much more involved in a turtle tortoise community back then so i'm pretty familiar with with that so right as a kind of a a very trying time for people that love turtles yes yeah yeah so yeah and so how i got involved with tsa was um a guy got myself and john carr from university of louisiana monroe together and we put on a alligator snapping turtle session. And um, it was pretty cool. Got a bunch of alligator snapping turtle folks together and uh, kind of had Peter Pritchard, who wrote, if somebody's seen the old alligator snapping turtle book, and he was reissuing that about the same time. So um had Peter kind of give the intro keynote for that session, and that went pretty well. Um, and so I just stayed involved. I really liked the group. And uh, over years through kind of one of the things in grad school I wanted to work on and kind of taught myself with this software program uh, called Program Mark. And it's a way to to um, deal with mark recapture data, looking at survivorship and population size. All, you know, those those pieces of information you need to determine population viability, you know, growth, what causes growth and decline uh-huh. and that sort of thing. So I've been working on teaching myself that. And so two things kind of happened simultaneously. Uh, I got contacted. They So TSA kind of has what they call range country programs where they try to support, um, you know, locals to do more in situ work, you know, instead of trying to keep a bunch of captive animals in the U.S., let's do it in the country those species come from. Right. So, so they have like in, in uh, Madagascar, they have facilities for the plowshare tortoise and whatnot. Correct. Right. Okay. Right. Um, and so they actually have a North American program that does uh, long-term sampling at several sites throughout the U.S. And they're building up all the all this mark recapture data, but they're looking for somebody that could handle the data. So they contacted me and said, hey, um, can you analyze the data? And, you know, we'll throw your name on some papers. I'm like, yeah, sure. And I've been to a few of their sites. And okay. that's been fun. Um, some of them... They actually sample a lot of Florida Springs where you go out and snorkel and hand capture all the turtles, which is a blast. Right now that sounds really good, doesn't oh, it? Oh God, doesn't it? <laughs> I could I could go for that right now. So sweat's boring down our yeah. face here. <laughs> but but what was really cool what's been also cool is one of their original programs was started in India. Okay. Um with Shalindra Singh and he, he runs their India program. And Shy Shy and I kinda connected some of these meetings and have had good chats and you know, and I, I've mentioned they're working on, you know, a lot of a lot of donors really want to th- love throwing money at the idea of making babies and throwing the little baby turtles back out in the wild, and yeah, and which is great because I mean, that's charismatic video, right? People, right, you see that all over the world, sea turtles being let loose. And exactly, yeah. exactly. So I'm like, well, let's get some of that demographic data from wild populations, so um, so we can augment that and have some real world data to back up, like you know, establishing like success criteria. What are we working for here? And then I'm like, and it goes back to, hey, you're catching all, I mean, 
two aquatic turtle diversity hotspots in the in the world are the Ganges drainage in India and the Mobile River drainage in Alabama. So the southeast U.S. and northern India are the aquatic turtle hotspots in the world. Yeah, and and uh, if we think about Al- the Alabama drainage, that's map turtles and right uh, things like that. So it's uh, mm-hmm. cooters and sliders and whatnot. But uh, right, yeah. Yeah, and then what's what's going on over there in the uh, in India? It's yeah, so India would be more batagurids and soft shells. Okay, that makes they have some huge soft shells. They do. I haven't seen a big one yet, but yeah, they've got some monsters. And the batagur is the funny looking turtle that has breeding colors. It turns a a, some Mm -hmm. like bright red and pink and turn their heads different colors. Yeah, and but there's several uh, genera under bat under that family batagurid. Yes. Yeah. So. so we folk, but anyway, we folk. Um, so I was like, "Hey, let's look at the Saryu River. We've got a couple of sites set up there, and uh, good sites. There's a called a um, crowned river terrapin is one of their target species, Hardella thurgeon. Oh yes, used to call it Thurge's turtle. Thurge's <laughs> turtle. Yeah, a, didn't have a good name at all. Which are turns out impressive beasts. Very kind of like map turtles. Very sexually dimorphic, mm-hmm. and the males are maybe slighter size. The females get like 30, 40 pounds. They are yeah. massive. Um, so, and he goes, there's some other species there. So let's start sampling. So I went over and just got a little bit of money to do like a preliminary sampling trip and spent a few nights at a couple sites just catching a marking turtles, trying to get an idea what our protocol will be. And then it took us a couple of years and we finally got funding and we did a five-year mark recapture study over there. Wow. So, so did uh, you go over there once a year or? I, I made it there the first time and then we got the money together. Um, and it was basically just enough money to pay their staff to do the work. Okay. And then I finally, we finally got a little extra money. I bought a plane ticket. The day I was supposed to head to the airport, India shut its borders because of COVID. Oh, uh, COVID. Yeah. So, yeah, good old COVID. Yeah. So I haven't made it back, and that has been a very big disappointment of mine that I've been, only been there once so far. But at some point, you'll you'll go back. And yeah, because this it, project is ongoing. It is, it is, and it's been great working. Uh, several things are really cool about it. One is the project I've been working on has been basically female led. Um, there's two female biologists that work for TSA India. Okay, and so they. Um, what the, what are the names? Well, actually, there's three. One has since left to move on to school, but uh-huh. um, there's uh, Arunama Singh, um, Shraparna Duda, and then Rashika Dubla. Those three ladies have basically carried the project. Very good. Particularly all through COVID and everything else. So they got it done, and uh, that that has been great. So Okay. Um, and... And TSA India has been really good about that. I've been helping out just tangentially with another project in Northeast India, some radio telemetry tortoise with some of the mountain tortoises up there. Oh, Burmese, the yeah. Burmese mountain tortoise? Yeah. Man- Manuria? Yeah. 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 There's a, 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 another female, Sushmaida, who's running that project. And so just kind of helping her. So when I can't get over there, basically, I help them a lot with – with editing for grant proposals and everything, and okay, I mean their English is better than mine, but you know, going through. <laughs> okay, <laughs> still but editing. You're helping each other cross 
cultural divides. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, helping them with that, helping them with data analysis and that sort of thing. And it's it's a great group of people over there. And yeah, I definitely need to get back. I love the food. I'd love to eat the food over there. Yeah. So. And so this this is also good. I think I'm gonna say this. It it's probably good for you. Because you're you're kind of a desk jockey now, so it's, right. it's good to have these other projects that you know mm-hmm. keep you in the field from time to time, and right. have other interesting projects to work on. Correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. It helps so the better you get at this, the more time you spend behind a desk. It uh, seems like I know, I know, and especially if you you know want want you know need to support a family, you know, and you need to move up and yeah, yeah, you got to have a career. You so. do, you do. Yeah. So. Any other projects you're working on? Or? Those are, I mean, that that kind of hits the gamut right there. So okay. um, I would like to do more. I just don't have time. Sure. Well, you got, you got kids. Yeah. You got a whole family dynamic to deal with. So. Yeah, yeah. So. So, yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, you, you got to spend a, at least a little time with the kitties. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I love spending time. It's awesome. I'm. That's probably the only reason I'm looking forward to getting home right now is uh, yeah. See them and my wife. So, but okay. otherwise, but they're awesome too. I mean, they, they understand what I like to do. And so, you know, hopefully get a few more trips like this in over the years. And I wonder what it would be like when growing up when dad's a scientist or mom's a scientist. Yeah. I wonder what that's like for kids. I don't know. It's, it's, it's different. They have, I like to think they have a different viewpoint on things because it's, you know, we don't, don't sugarcoat. I mean, sugarcoat anything. They, you know, they've had, Question, you know, especially my son, the oldest. You know, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, and he had lots of questions. And sure, there. You know, he was what five, six at the time, and it's biology. So she's like, "I'm not going to hold back." You know, and sure. just told him the way it is, and so yeah, it's so. There's that. You know, a bit more open about yeah. some of those things, and none of that stork business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Birds and the bees and all that stuff. Oh, so. Brother. So yeah, I mean, they can you know they can always ask us anything. I like to think that, and good, they have a pretty good idea. And you know, they may not be scientists themselves, but yeah. at least they appreciate what you what mm-hmm. you guys do. So yeah, and and it, it's great because so you know both of them. You know, I've told my son like the two most important things you can do is like you know reading and math. And yeah. I I was not very good at math, but he has an my son has like an inept, he has a sort of aptitude for math. He picks it up quick. Yeah. He doesn't like it because he, he has, it takes time and he wants to be done as quick as possible. I mean, he's nine. So yeah. 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 Lots to do when you're nine. Exactly. He wants to be done as quick as possible. I keep telling him, but you know, he's that kind of kid that likes to take things apart, see how it works. And, and design things. And I'm like, an engineer in there somewhere. and, And I'm like, so I go, see, I go, we need to work on your handwriting and your math. I mean, if you're going to engineer stuff, tell people how to build it. And, you know, just, I think, you know, providing that sort of perspective from yeah, from our professional lives, you know, it's like being able and, to communicate. And your wife, tell us again what your wife is up to. So my wife actually has a, wall, a master's in biology. She's got a wildlife okay. background. She's done a lot of bat work and she likes field botany. Um, and so she's done some stuff for us reading uh we had a bunch of bat de- audio bat detectors out around the state, and so she had background on reading those, reading and interpreting those files, and so um, she was able to, you know, two or three hours a day, um, you know, she could do it at home and go down the office and 
oh. work on that while I wrangle kids or whatever. Sure. And then you guys make you you make it work. Make it work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then now that the kids are uh, both in school all day, she started subbing. Um, ah, okay. And so, uh, and mostly subbing at the same school, which makes it easy. Yeah. And she's really enjoying that. But we we talked about it, and and I agreed with her. She she thought it was more important to be home with the kids if we could swing it. So uh, you never you'll never get that time again. So you might as well. Yeah. You know. But you know, I know she my like, wife got to stay home with our uh, my youngest daughter. For a couple right. of years, and uh, which I thought was great because uh, that's that's time you'll never you know you would never have otherwise. Exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, I was going to say, you know, and, and it's fun. She takes him for hikes and that sort of thing. And my son's got into mushrooms a little bit, so he likes to look for mushrooms. And um, I bought him his first point and shoot a couple years ago, so he's been having Here fun we go. with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got all okay. my older Nikon camera gear sitting around. Figure I'll let him have at it when he's, yeah, a little farther along. So okay, he might yeah. take one or two of them apart. You never know. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's why they're still sitting there having a good. <laughs> but well, tell us why you're here. Oh man, do you want the, do you want the personal reason? You want the sad story? You want the? Tell me whatever part of it you want. Okay, I I think we should we should probably talk a little bit about. We should the... we should it'd be good. Yeah. We're, so, we're vague casting here, but we'll, we'll get, uh, we'll to, get to it. We'll get to it. And I'm trying to build up to it. This is like the third time I've told this story, this yeah. trip. So got to, got to mentally build up to it. No. Um, so Curtis Schmidt, who worked at Sternberg Museum in Natural History. And if anybody's done much field herping in Kansas, you've probably run into Curtis. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people seem to know him. So the Sternberg Museum wanted to start an outbound program and they started doing little trips around different places. Um, and so Curtis really latched onto that. And I had moved back to Kansas at this point. And so Curtis called me and goes, we need to do an outbound trip. And I'm like, sure. And he goes, you've got the connections in South Africa, set it up. I'm like, okay. You know, this <laughs> is kind of like, yeah, man. And, uh, and basically we talked about what we talked about doing was um, every – Every other year or two, I would do a trip, and then Curtis would do a trip. So, you know, we did South Africa. um, And then um, Curtis called me one day, and he goes, okay, I know. Then, So our South Africa trip was 18, 19, and then Curtis called me. And then COVID hit, so we're off for a couple years. Okay. And then Curtis goes, okay, I got a trip set up. And I'm like, all right. He goes, we're going with Matt Cage to Peru. And I'm like, perfect. That's on my bucket list, you know. And so he had set it up with Matt and then um, found out you were coming along, which is great. And then, um, yeah, so we had it all set up, had the date set. We had all the people in place. And then to back up, and I don't know all the details, so I'm just going to keep it vague here. But sure. I know before we went to Africa, Curtis had been having a lot of migraines. And, um, and he actually had had surgery i think to remove a little growth or a tumor or something off his brain a few months before he went to africa and he was worried he wouldn't make that trip but he did and he did he was healthy and everything did well the whole time um so this summer so we had this in place and then in june a whole nother story i have a friend who bought a field station of belize and so i went down to hang out hurt for a couple days there check it out and Mm -hmm. see my friend and um 
I'm in the airport in Belize to come home and I get a text from a couple different people in Kansas and evidently Curtis had not felt well, he'd laid down or something and then wouldn't wake up and his body shut down and he'd passed away. Mm. So I think he's only like 39. And so, and I know a couple of days before that we had chatted over Facebook and, and he'd been complaining of migraines and other things. And so, so I don't know all the connections or what causes it or anything. I just know that's kind of where it was heading. Yeah. So, but no, Curtis passed away. Um, and so that kind of left this trip in limbo and Matt and I kind of sit around for a month or so. Cause we didn't want to be disrespectful and start out. Hey, do you still want to go? You know, kind of thing. Right. We wanted to, because we were just as in shock as everybody else. Sure. And so we finally, I reached out to a couple people, um, close friends that were going to be on the trip, and we started talking about it. And for various reasons, they weren't as interested in going. Sure. Since Curtis was gone, they're kind of going for Curtis. And then um, hated to cancel the dates, because I'm like said, from a selfish standpoint, this has been a bucket list trip for me for right. a long time. And yeah. I still wanted to make it. So I called Matt and I'm like, hey, if there's another trip I can latch on to or whatever, just let me know. And then Matt called me a couple months later and he'd reached out to everybody and filled this thing. And yeah, here we are. Yeah, he just opened it up as another trip. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. So. And now Curtis would have wanted you to come. Oh, yeah, for sure. Sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And by the time, I'm sure by the time this comes out, I'll have sent this around. But we do have a... A picture of a picture of Curtis pose that we posed with a Bushmaster on this trip. So okay. in his honor, in yeah. his honor, in memory, so, yeah, in memory, yeah, 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 yeah. So that was that was that was really good. Um, yeah. So uh, it's a sad, uh, sad bit uh, mm -hmm. of, uh, and of course we, you know, sympathize to his friends and family, of course. Yes. Uh, and uh, you know he would have wanted everybody to go anyway. Oh yeah, so, yeah. That's just um, him. Glad you went ahead and, and made the trip down. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been good to hang out with you. And, and we've known each other for a while. Like you said, we uh, interacted <laughs> a long time ago. Right. And I don't remember everybody I interacted with, unfortunately. No, no. But no. Um, uh, but we've known each other a little bit over the years, and mm -hmm. so it's been good to kind of um, sit down and, and get to know you a lot better, and talk, and just hang out and. Have fun. Yeah, for sure. This is <laughs> this has been really good. This has been really good. Yeah. And um I, I need to go back and listen to the uh Peter Mooney episode because <laughs> you and Pete and I have had some long conversations deep into the night in the jungle. So um uh, yeah, I, I'd encourage people to listen to that one. It's it's been fun just how small a world it is, even between generations and Listen, yeah. And finding out Pete and I know some of the same people and some of those connections with Carl Caulfield and some of the old, old timers in the, in the herpetology field. And well, I'm still working on getting Peter back for part two. That'd be uh, great. He's kind of, I don't know. He's a little reluctant, but uh, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, he's got a story for everything. And I know people think he couldn't have possibly <laughs> done that or been there, but yeah. he has. And, yeah. and he's he's just been a, a, a herping vag and herping and birding vagabond. He's been mm -hmm. all over the world. Yeah. And uh, he has many, many stories mm -hmm. and uh, he's a pleasurable chap to hang around with. For sure. For yeah. sure. And I guess, you know, with that, I mean, the one thing I would say is, you know, we all, you know, talking with you, talking with Matt or anybody else on the trip, we all kind of take different paths, do different things, but... um. If there's anything Curtis taught me is just make the most of whatever you're doing at the time while you can. So Yep. 
Exactly. So mm-hmm. you never know. So and Peter's good, a good uh, role model for that too. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how old Peter is, but uh, you know he still gets up every day and he, he comes in and he's happy as a clam when he wakes up and he greets everybody and says good morning. What a wonderful day! And yeah, here yeah. we all are and. Right. Let's go do something fun. Exactly. So, exactly. It's a good attitude. Yeah, I know. I know. I yeah. know. So. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I uh, appreciate mm-hmm. you sitting down here in this uh, <laughs> hut and there's no swimming pool to jump in. <coughs> Excuse me. There's no swimming pool to jump in afterwards, so no. sorry about that. <laughs> I guess I can go see my noodle arapaima down in the lagoon. <laughs> yeah, you could do that if you like. You won't be the first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, good to talk to you. All right, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Bye. That's it for episode 78. I want to thank Darren Riddle for coming on the show. It was really great to talk with you, and I really enjoyed hanging out in the rainforest with you as well. So much fun. And uh, one more shout-out to all the So Much Pingle patrons who keep the show rolling on into the future. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, it's easy to do, and it costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle, and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. Also, I do like hearing from folks, and you can email me at so much pingle at gmail.com. And I am also active on Instagram and Mastodon now under the So Much Pingle handle, of course. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.